people who are in the School of Business and Engineering, I always say that uh, you get into product management usually of three different ways. Yeah. Uh, one, you're an engineer who just doesn't want to engineer anymore. Like you, you spend way too much time in the code and you want to you want to do something a little bit different. Uh, you could be a business person or a marketing person who knows enough technology to be dangerous, uh, or you're an MBA. Mm -hmm. And the, like those are the, the three sorts of people I see becoming product managers. Uh, and I was the the marketing guy who moved into who moved into product. Um, it's interesting, like most universities uh, and organizations don't teach product management. Yeah, they don't. So there's not a major. Yeah. You know, here at, for example, Clarkson. But or, it's a big thing. It's huge. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, for those of you who watch the movie Office Space, you ever see the movie Office Space? You know, there's the guy who's the people person. He mm -hmm. takes the specs from the engineers to the business people so they don't have to talk to each other. Yeah. Well, there's there's actually like a really good reason for that, right? <laughs> it... Hello and welcome, everyone. You're listening to the riveting Clarkson Ignite podcast. We're coming to you from the WTSC radio station in Batman's Batcave in the student center. As always, I'm Matt. And I'm Nick. This podcast is a weekly podcast meant to connect all of you individuals across Clarkson's diverse community and give you, our listeners, interesting and unique content. Our hope is that you can walk away from our episodes learning something new and valuable, something that will inspire you. In this week's unique episode, just like last week's, <laughs> we recorded during Kogo <laughs> Weekend. For this episode, Matt talked to Ron Ayers, class of 02. Ron is currently the Director of Product and Marketing at Atlantis Technology. He works primarily at a venture-backed seed stage startups to build their initial prototype web and mobile applications, products, and marketing strategy. That was really hard that to say. That is a mouthful. <laughs> Ultimately, it was a great conversation. Uh, we talked about a bunch of different talk topics, including uh, product marketing, the uh, minutia of social media marketing and minutia, uh, minutia uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was completely different than I think a lot of the conversations that we've had on this podcast. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you. Listener mail. <sighs> Coming from our very own podcast apprentice, newly found out name, Annalise Dezalia. Boom. What's the it, question? I thought it was a different name. <laughs> What's the question? What is your most irrational fear, Matthew? So uh, mine, I have no problem with cliffs. I will ski off of cliffs. I will stand next to cliffs. I'll ski off of a cliff. Yep. Not like big <laughs> cliffs, but like, anyways, my fear is not heights, okay? I will stand on ledges of things. Yeah. Um, fine. It's, my fear is that when I'm standing on said ledge, it's not that I'll fall over, you know, it's that a wind gust will push me over. Even if it's not a windy day, I just have that fear that out of nowhere there's going to be an 80 mile an hour gust or however much you need to get pushed over something, and it will just push me off the ledge. My truly, I'm like, I'm not, I have a different irrational fear, but my irrational fear when I'm standing on a ledge of a really big cliff is my mind just goes, just go, just do it, just do it. <laughs> That's so not good. It literally goes, just, just <laughs> run. Should not do that. So I always walk away from the cliff real quick. <laughs> That's good. But um, 
my irrational fear is oh my god i go skiing almost every single day in the winter but i am so afraid of falling off the chairlift really i am dead afraid so i have you, to do you i have do to well put my rest? arm behind <sighs> the chairlift every single time oh. i ride i ride a chairlift almost every day for 180 100 year, days a year i'm so surprised i'm scared of chairlifts wow yeah is it is it an irrational fear that wind will blow you off the chairlift yeah it is irrational because i've been doing it ever since i was like zero years old and i, I didn't start putting my arm over the back side of the chairlift until last year now that you say that though i definitely get the same sort of feeling as i do on cliffs where i'm like wind might push me off this thing on chairlifts too but i've i just i think i've gotten more used to sitting back on them so i just i'm like it's fine it'll be okay it's not even a windy day and i'll have to, i'll have to put my arm behind Hmm. Yeah. Well, there oh. you go. Let us know what your irrational fear is. Yep. Clarkson Ignite. Or nope, not Clarkson Ignite. Ignite Podcast at Clarkson.edu. Thanks. <laughs>Ron, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you taking some time out of your busy schedule during Kogo to uh, talk with us. I wanted to bring you in and um, kind of talk about what your experience is on the uh, marketing and development side of uh, technology, uh, what your current role is, and and you know your story of how you got to where you are now. Um, it seems pretty pretty unique for most Clarkson uh, graduates. So. Why don't we start with uh, how you ended up at Clarkson to begin with? Sure. Uh, when I was a student in high school, I uh, actually came up here for uh, math and science days, of all things. Uh, and that was my first exposure to Clarkson. Uh, turns out I was not very good at math and science. Uh, <laughs> I was more of a, uh, a business guy. Uh, but I, uh, I earned a leadership award, uh, which certainly uh, came with a scholarship and made it made it a lot easier for me to come here, which was great. Absolutely. Uh, I originally came in as a computer engineer, and I looked at the curriculum and I said, I am not a computer engineer. <laughs> Uh, so I enrolled in Clarkson as a management and information systems uh, major uh, in the School of Business, and uh, yeah, so that's how that's how I got up here. And so, what was um, what was your experience like while you were here? What were you involved in on campus? Sure, uh, I was involved in quite a few things on campus uh, for. Those uh, alumni uh, who might be listening, uh, if you remember, uh, in every dorm, not only do we have a resident assistant, you know, an RA, but we used to also have an RCC, which was the uh, Residential Computer Consultant. Interesting. And we were the people that helped make sure that everybody's computers still worked in the dorm room. <laughs> so we had many of the same privileges as an RA, but we were the computer guys. So, so was there a computer, like a desktop in every dorm? Is that how it worked? Yeah, there was a desktop in every dorm. This is right before Wi-Fi. So okay. people were coming in with, you know, some beefy computers for their time. You know, everybody connected up to the internet with an Ethernet cable mm -hmm. uh, and had to be configured on campus. But every freshman dorm had an RCC okay. who made sure that everybody could get set up on campus. Uh, you know, when they arrive, which is That's totally different cool. than today where everybody just comes <laughs> in with their laptop and they free for up Wi-Fi, right? Yep. So. so, okay. So what did, um, what did your early career look like after Clarkson? Sure. I, I mean, back, back to Clarkson for a second. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was a student here, I, uh, I became involved with, uh, a bunch of different clubs, 
uh, and organizations. Probably the one that's most, well, two of them, uh, two that were pretty relevant to my career. One was uh, an outside company uh, came to me when I was a student because they saw I had a website, which was kind of unique at the time. Yeah. Uh, and they asked me if I wanted to run a website for my campus. And it was a website called The Daily Jolt. Uh, it was a pre-Facebook kind of social website for students. Uh, and we provided things like news, dining hall menus, uh, things like that to the student body. So, uh, so it was kind of like a, I would say more like a precursor to blogging. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing that I was very involved in that, that kind of set me on my career. Uh, the other was an organization out of the School of Business called the Internet Consulting Group. And uh, basically in the 90s, uh, the university had earned uh, a grant to start a consulting company to teach people in the North Country how to use the internet. Uh, and it was mainly run by graduate students, but uh, a professor, uh, Ron Corba, uh, invited me as an undergraduate to help lead that organization, which was probably one of the first entrepreneurship sort of programs at the university. Uh, over the years, we started uh, basically building a group of undergraduate students who would work on projects for the community building websites. Uh, I think our biggest one was we totally revamped the Clarkson Athletics brand. Oh, cool. And we took them from like a, you know, clarkson.edu slash athletics to clarksonathletics.com. Uh, but for, you know, 20 or 30 students to be given those sorts of projects, uh, we charged for them. We worked on the contracts. Uh, and we had uh, an office right in, uh, right in the, the new school of business. Uh, was pretty compelling for all the students that were involved. Yeah. Uh, and and so after I graduated from Clarkson, uh, I went to go work for the Daily Jolt full time. Okay. Uh, they had had about 30, 35 employees. Uh, and right before I came in, they had like two. Wow. So uh, I was basically employee number one of the reboot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I ended up doing sales uh Product management. I mean, there's only three of us. There was a president, a vice president, and me. <laughs> uh, so I worked on a lot of that uh, for five years. And we took a company that uh, had some angel funding, uh, but ran out of that angel funding. And uh, we made it slightly profitable hmm. uh, so that it could kind of move on. Um, after that, uh, I became uh, a marketing manager for a startup uh, called RatePoint. And uh, we were trying to change the way that people uh, kind of manage their reputation online with ratings and reviews. Uh, and so I, uh, I did a lot of lead generation marketing. So that's, that's where you're sending out email marketing campaigns and online advertising and, you know, really trying to work uh, what's called a conversion funnel mm -hmm. uh, to bring in more leads and more, more customers. Uh, and about halfway through that, uh, it, it kind of became clear to us that... that we needed something different to market, and yeah. so I transitioned from marketing to product development. So instead of selling the features, I was now helping create the features. Um, and along the way at both uh, the Daily Jolt and RatePoint, uh, I interacted with a company called Atlantis Technology. And uh, they're a company that uh, basically does uh, prototyping of applications, uh, but they also build software engineering teams to assist other companies. Uh, and so I'd worked closely with them on some of these prototypes and, uh, RatePoint ended up, uh, being, you know, somewhat successful, uh, but as they kind of, you know, sold off their, the pieces of their business, uh, then Atlantis Technology picked me up, uh, based on, based on the interaction. So that's, that's where I am today. 
uh, is director of product management and marketing, is uh, with Atlantis, helping other companies launch their products. So what is the um, what does the product management process look like for? Because you work mainly on you know developmental and, and startup level applications, correct? Yeah, it's it's mainly web and mobile applications. Um, some data work. Um, it's super interesting uh, for. People who are in the School of Business and Engineering, I always say that uh, you get into product management usually of three different ways. Yeah. Uh, one, you're an engineer who just doesn't want to engineer anymore. Like you, you spend way too much time in the code and you want to you want to do something a little bit different. Uh, you could be a business person or a marketing person who knows enough technology to be dangerous, uh, or you're an MBA. Mm-hmm. And the, like those are the, the three sorts of people I see becoming product managers. Uh, and I was the the marketing guy who moved into who moved into product. Um, it's interesting, like most universities uh, and organizations don't teach product management. Yeah, they don't. So there's not a major. Yeah. You know, here at, for example, Clarkson. But it's or, a big thing. It's huge. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, for those of you who watch the movie Office Space, you ever see the movie Office Space? You know, there's the guy who's the people person. He mm-hmm. takes the specs from the engineers to the business people so they don't have to talk to each other. Yeah. Well, there's there's actually, like, a really good reason for that, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I sit in the middle uh, and make sure that everything is well organized, uh, make sure that we have a plan for moving forward and make sure that, you know, the business people understand the decisions they're making, but also the engineers they do want to understand exactly why we're doing something yeah. and what, what the purpose is. And so my job isn't to tell an engineer how to do their job. Uh, my job Explain is to tell why. them what I want to accomplish. Yeah. And so I let the smart people do their stuff, and uh, I just make sure that the result accomplishes what the business needs to do. Um, you know, there's, there's multiple methods to product management. You know, the one that I think people will hear, you know, there's really two, right? There's waterfall, mm-hmm. you know, which is, here's a really big document of yeah. 100 pages of specs. <laughs> Build this. And then there's agile, which is exactly how it sounds, which is it's constant iteration. Yeah. Things can change on the fly. Uh, if you're a business major or an engineer, you should be studying up on this stuff right away. Uh, because if, you, you know, if you're a computer science major and you're going to work for, uh, for uh, a company you're going to be thrown into this right away. Um, it's a good head start for anybody who's doing that. I actually had the privilege of having a product management internship. So I'm an engineering and management student. Um, and uh, after my freshman year, I got a product management internship at Henkel, uh, their adhesive division, uh, Loctite Glue. I don't know if you've ever heard mm-hmm. of them. Um, and that was, they were moving in the agile direction, but um, as with a lot of storied um, brand names that they had, there was... Um, you know, they had a process that they were really kind of stuck on and they used a lot of uh, road mapping to kind of switch more in the in the agile world. Mm-hmm. Is that something that what is the do you focus on road mapping a lot and what does that process look like? So so for me, roadmaps are the the big picture. Okay. And for me the the main product management process is actually what are we doing week to week? Or okay. In sprints in, mm-hmm. in, in the agile world, which you know could be one week, could be two weeks. But when people show up on Monday what are we doing this week? Yeah. And uh, that can always be a challenge. For me, roadmaps, and there's there's many different roadmapping tools, they look into the future, but as you know, uh, it's harder to predict the future the farther away it gets. Yeah. So we have a really good idea that like, hey, uh, by the end of the year, we would like to do this. But if somebody comes in 
you know, waving a million dollar check in front of you, you may decide to change what you're your doing. strategy, yeah. you know, to uh, to accomplish customer need or a market need or something along those lines. Um, so that's why I say it's good to kind of study up on all these different you yeah. know, pieces of it. Um, uh, you know, if you're coming out of uh, Clarkson and you're becoming a product manager, you're going to be working on the smaller stuff first and you're going to have a chief product officer mm -hmm. or someone like that who's working on the roadmap. Sometimes even the CEO, yeah. you know, getting involved in the roadmap where the product manager is really in charge of making sure that everything gets executed. Uh, and everything's always not going to get executed perfectly, yeah. but you're like the voice of reason and transparency. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't succeed in a sprint, everybody knows that you didn't, but what are we going to do next week to fix that? Yep. So, so, um, what does, so the, the products that you manage, uh, what are the, because it's technology, I'm just interested to know what the, uh, the life cycle looks like for those products, how, how quickly do they kind of reach their um, established age? Mm -hmm. And does is it different because you guys are constantly iterating on the like, you know, there's different versions of, of softwares yeah. and apps all the time. Does that kind of make it so that it's almost never reached a mature stage? It, it's 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 funny you say that. I always say that uh, any any product that doesn't have like additional what we call like stories. Mm -hmm. So if you use a tool like uh, there's great tools like Pivotal Tracker and Jira that companies use to manage this. If you don't have any stories to work on, then your product's probably in deep trouble already, yeah. right? So I think good products always have constant iteration and are consistently have development going on, new features and functionality. Uh, it's when a, a product is mature and then we're just selling it and coasting on it, that's when I get nervous as a, <laughs> as a product manager. Um, now, some some things that you know we've built, you know, we built web and mobile applications and everything else. Like, you know, they do a pretty good job and they do their their job very very well. And there's not a lot of new features that need to be added in. Uh, but other ones, uh, you know, you could probably expand on them forever. But you have to figure out the right things to do. Do you want to spend the time and the money and the energy on those things? And uh, those become higher level business decisions. Yes. So. Um, what? How much of your job is looking at the customer and the user level? Is that something that, as a product manager, that you look at mostly, or do you have a sales team that kind of works on that and communicates with you as a product manager? Uh, it depends on the project. Okay. Uh, really, like, you you always have to when you're talking to a sales team or you're talking to a management team uh, or a marketing team, you have to understand. <laughs> what is driving them, right? So when your sales team comes to you and says, I need this feature, right? Is it because 100 people said that they needed that feature? Is it because the guy who they just talked to on the phone said they wouldn't buy unless they have that feature? Um, that's, that's really tricky to kind of figure out because you don't want to build an adversarial relationship yeah. with the, the teams in your organization. Um, you want to be listening to customers all the time. Uh, most, when you talk about web and mobile applications, you're fortunate enough that you have analytic tools that you can use to kind of figure out what they're doing yeah. as well. Uh, so when you're, when you're building an app and you, you put this button in here and then you find out nobody's clicking the button, but I put the button right there, yeah. you know, you can, you can kind of figure that out. Like, so you, it's almost like you're working backwards, mm -hmm. which is, which is super interesting. Um, you know, you want to do surveys, you want to talk to customers. It's really, really, for whatever reason, difficult sometimes to get in front of those yeah. in front of those people. 
Um, but if you can, you should definitely do so. But what you really want to do is you want to kind of build up a backlog of ideas and thoughts. And then when you hear it enough times, mm-hmm. then, then you act on it. Uh, I, I think the most common mistake is, is that we just often react based on the last thing that we've heard. Yeah. So if the sales guy heard that uh, they're not going to buy unless it has this feature, like you could go build that feature, but you've also might have built six months of technical debt in your project, which is going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to remove a year from now, which is the reason why you just can't jump into things. Mm-hmm. So. And um, so what does that... So how do you have kind of a magic number of what the importance is of a certain feature? Like how many times a salesperson has to come to you with something? No, I mean, it's something that really has to be talked amongst all the members of the team. Um, There will be certain things where all of a sudden you will get 50 emails in like one hour. (laughs) And then you go, oh, that's broken. We should should probably (laughs) fix that. We should fix that. You know, uh, where the others are, you know, they could be like, hey, once a month we hear this. Once a month we hear this. And then at some point in time you have to figure out, okay, if I add that feature in, uh, what's the value? Is it it going to make me more sales? Is it going to make my customers happier? Uh, You know, oftentimes people will ask you for features that are actually irrelevant to your business because they want your product to do something else, Uh, which could mean that maybe you should pivot your product. It could mean maybe they're using the wrong product, or maybe you should build something different to kind of complement that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that happens all the time. Uh, where people will say, wouldn't it be great if it did this? And it's like, yes, but you, you bought this project for doing something totally different. That, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So. And um, so you have on here that uh, some of the work that you've done is in pay-per-click and traditional advertising. What Was that kind of towards the forefront of that, uh, that trend, or was it something you've done recently? Uh, that, boy, that was... A lot of time in the uh, the early 2000s, especially. I mean, I still do this stuff all the time today. Mm-hmm. Um, this really gets back to something that uh, if you were a marketer in particular, if you were in the school of business, uh, <laughs> you probably don't like your statistics class, but you will come to realize that marketing is not just about like brands and logos. Yeah. It is a lot about just understanding basic math and numbers. And so my experience with pay-per-click and traditional, uh, you know, kind of advertising uh, both fell on the sales side and the marketing side. So I was selling things like banner ads. And uh, at another point in time, I was purchasing those banner ads. And at the end of the day, it's a, it's a two-sided game where I'm doing the math constantly. If I spend $1,000 on banner ads, uh, ideally, I should make $2,000. Yeah, exactly. Right? And it's, it's a lot of math. Uh, and you've got all the tools. You've got things like Google Analytics that are free. Uh, they give you all the information on a cost per click, but it's a constant game of trying to figure out, okay, what's bringing me back the most value uh, and, and what's not, and how do I get rid of that? And now it obviously expanded out to Facebook and you know Twitter and Instagram and all sorts of social media marketing. And you, know, you can do, uh, you, you drop a cookie on a user and you can have an ad follow you all over the place. So you want to understand all these different channels. So there's, 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 there's the piece of, hey, how's, how's my website doing? How's that converting people? Uh, what are the channels that are bringing people into my website? How's that converting people? And so you, you, in your head, you build this massive funnel that if you can just tweak one small part of it, 
you could make your company hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And it, it's only a tenth of a percent. Mm -hmm. But that's the sort of thing that uh, I think it's kind of overlooked yeah. when we when we talk about marketing. Uh, but is you know, you know, companies employ you know entire teams that just create A/B tests for different messages on the front page of their website with a slightly different color button, and it turns out that if they change a comma into a period and they make a button blue and turn it into a green one, then all of a sudden you've made your company a half million dollars, <laughs> right? Which, which is yeah, crazy which to is think. Crazy. But if you've got you know a you know a ten million dollar marketing budget and you're putting it into online advertising, you can see how that can quickly escalate. Yeah. Just by percentages of a point. Mm -hmm. So I always tell students uh, that are interested in marketing, drop some funnels. Mm -hmm. If you're doing the uh, if you're doing a, like an SB one thirteen class, everything has a funnel. Doesn't matter if it's online, if it's offline. How many people are walking in the door? How many people are looking in the menu? How many people are ordering, and what are they ordering? Yeah. And what did it cost to get those people in the door? Exactly. Right. Well, and so I actually have a um, a startup myself that I started a couple of years ago, uh, sustainable clothing brand, um, and we, you know, that's something that I'm always looking at. There's only two of us, uh, myself and my business partner, and I'm kind of more the the marketing person. And you have, you know, the the marketing funnel uh, of your Facebook and Instagram ads, and then you have to follow that funnel to uh, our Squarespace website, where then you got to figure out how many people actually bought the product. And it's kind of like the the compounding funnels thing is really something that I've been playing with a little bit more um, because. You know, as a startup, the first thing that kind of gets thrown out the window is the marketing budget because yeah. you're so, you know, squeezed to make sure that you actually have the money to get the product out there that, you know, the last thing to be thought of is, okay, now we have to, we have to promote this. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting that you said that. What, um, so for students interested in marketing, what is kind of like, what's the big fish that you see coming next in the, uh, you know, for promoting, because it just seems like there's a lot of saturation with, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram. And it just seems that, you know, when I'm scrolling through Facebook, probably 50 to 60% of the content that I see is sponsored stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it's becoming increasingly so with Instagram as well. Uh, and so as, you know, a company looking to, to put ourselves out there in new avenues, I find it hard to just be another one of those ads. Are there things that um, you're looking at uh, from your point of view that could be more effective? I've heard a few things about text messaging mm -hmm. um, for marketing, similar to how in, uh, emails kind of became ubiquitous. Is that something that you guys are, are looking at? I mean, it's it's really tricky because of the, the different sorts of laws that are in place. Yes. Yeah. You know, arbitrarily texting people. Um, I don't see any like new channel that's like jumping out at me. Uh, where I, what I do find that's being neglected, uh, ironically as a marketing person, is just doing the grind of reaching out to people directly in, a, in an authentic sort of way. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, if you are a startup and you're selling shirts, you know, when's the last time you went to an expo and got it behind a table and just sold shirts? We're actually right? doing that tonight What's at that? the alumni yeah. tent. Yeah. So... But, but that's cool. It, it, it's challenging. Right? Exactly. Because, yeah. Uh, again, it's intimidating. You, but you're also running a startup. You're two people. So you say to yourself, how can I maximize my time? But oftentimes we do, you know, 
we've only got a couple hundred customers. Yeah. So if I can go and I can I can uh, you know grind it out and get ten more customers, I've increased my customer base by ten percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think people forget that because they look at the online advertising is a low hanging fruit. It's yeah. like a magic bullet. And I always have to remind people that there's no magic bullets. No. Right? There there just isn't. And sometimes just being out there kind of uh, refreshes you, uh, get you in front of the customers. Uh, and I'm not saying go to like every trade show or something like that, but if you are, you know, if you are selling hockey sticks and you have a brand new hockey stick company, maybe you should go to the rink with a hockey stick and show it off to people. Yeah. Let them try it. And that will get you a lot more information than trying to uh, push Facebook ads to everybody who likes hockey, which, by the way, there's millions of people who like hockey. So what I'm really looking for is people who want to play hockey. Yeah. And, okay, what age can they buy it? And now, like, I'm sitting there and I'm spending all day long to throw an ad out there to somebody who probably isn't looking for a hockey stick right now, right? And they're going to scroll right by. Like, the other thing is, you know, so many people are just scrolling through to scroll through. Like, just because it says that, you know, 2,000 people have seen this ad doesn't mean that 2,000 people have actually interacted with that content or actually seen it. They've just passed by it long enough for Facebook to say, okay, that's that's a view on the ad. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, the biggest thing is, um, that I've been fighting with is, uh, on LinkedIn, I follow channels such as sales and, and all that stuff. And I always see the five best ways to, you know, get in front of your customers. And it's always these really kind of gimmicky things. And, um, you know, I've been fighting with, we're kind of on a, on a cash crunch as most startups are. Uh, and so I've been fighting with, okay, how do we just shove this in front of as many people as possible to get the revenue that we need? And a lot of the times, the easy, easiest, quote unquote, way to do that is just to be like a lot of those other gimmicky, flashy brands, but it's not who we are as a company. So I've been really kind of trying to balance the, we need the money and people have obviously done this successfully, so why shouldn't we with, it's not who we are ultimately, like in the long run, we need to stay true to who we are in order to be successful. Um, and I think that, that that's at least been the biggest part, you know, again, with marketing budget being the last thing to kind of be focused on. Um, is that something that you you see with a lot of the, the projects that you've worked on where it just seems like um, the traditional roots have been kind of foregone for some of the, the newer, flashier things? Yeah, I mean, well, it always seems so easy, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to remember that Facebook makes their money by you – uh, putting your ad out to the widest possible audience. So they give you this tool and you put together an ad and it says, this is going to reach 18 million people. And you're like, sweet. But really it only reached out to like 200 people. And of those 18 million people, there's only really like a few thousand relevant people in there. Right? Yeah. Google's the, almost the exact opposite. They want you to uh, you know, put in a keyword. Yeah. And ideally they want you to do the broadest possible keyword. So you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky kind of, kind of game. Uh, it's funny when you say traditional, I now think of PPC and like Facebook as like traditional yeah. and like people just totally forgotten about old school sales, mm-hmm. right? Calling people up, you know, driving out to a location and like showing off their wares. Um, you know, that's a, it's a, you know, I, I, I so remind me what, uh, what business you're in. So we're in the sustainable clothing company. So I'm actually wearing the shirt right now. Um, so we started back in the spring of 2017, uh, focusing on creating a company solely focused on closed loop sustainability. Mm-hmm. So, um, right now there aren't a lot of companies looking at, 
uh, at least in the performance clothing world, whether it be outerwear or activewear, um, focused on the the stage after uh, the sale, right? So a lot of companies now, most companies use recycled materials in their products. Um, Patagonia is probably the most famous. Uh, they have 100% recycled nylon and recycled polyester jackets, shirts, shorts, whatever you want. Um, they've figured out the whole before the sale piece of the sustainability. But not a lot of companies at all are looking at after the sale. So that customer has the shirt or the jacket for five, maybe if you're lucky, 10 years, and then it's not waterproof anymore. It has a bunch of tears in it. It's really dirty. They don't want to wear it anymore. It just looks beat down. And they're just going to, most of these products are synthetic and they're just going to throw it in the landfill. And it's just as bad, if not worse than a plastic bottle um, that's thrown in there with the waterproofing and wicking solutions that are on it. And so the, we wanted to create a company that not only had the most innovative and, and um, you know, full-bodied recycling program, but that focused on how to design these products so that when it came back to us for recycling, we didn't have a tough job because everyone focuses on, okay, it's not economically viable to recycle these products. How are you going to get your money back on it? It's an expensive process. And so, you know, if you design it for that in the beginning and you know, okay, we can't do blends in our products. We all we use 100% polyester only. It limits, it limits us somewhat, but not nearly enough based on the sustainability gains that we get after the fact. Um, and you do a couple of those key design changes, you still have a great, amazing product, but it works well for the economic piece at the end. So the, as you can tell, I focused a lot on the, des the design piece of it. And so my marketing strategy in the past has been, we have all these awesome features on this product. It's a great product. It's one of the most sustainable ones out there. You know, let's push those features. And it turns out that, you know, I was focused so much on the design piece that I completely lost track of why people buy clothing. They buy clothing because they like how it looks. And, you know, as much as that's, you know, again, who we are as a company is focused so much on the sustainability and these features and these amazing things that we've done to create this product, that that's what I wanted to push to customers. And while that's a great thing, that's something they can be proud about after they buy it. The main switch that I had to flip a couple of months ago was, okay, that's great after they buy the shirt that they can know that and be proud about the product that they have. But very few people are going to buy the product at first because of that. Right. And so that's what, that's what I've been you know, working with the past few months. Right. And so when you think about this from a PPC standpoint, right, yeah. a pay-per-click standpoint, in my mind as a marketing person, I'm running through my head and I'm going, what would I be searching for to find this product? Exactly. And they weren't going to be searching for a 100% polyester shirt yeah. or you know, sustainable shirt they were probably going to be searching for something like, you know, athletic wear or, you know, running t-shirt or exactly. something along those lines. Yeah. So, which is always very challenging, but when you look at the analytics piece yeah. and you're looking at that and you see that nobody's searching for it, even that can become as a marketing person an indicator that we may be positioning ourselves mm -hmm. in a different way. Uh, but the good news for you is that it also, you know, you've recognized that there's probably actually multiple businesses here. Yeah, right. There's there not are. just a shirt business. There is a shirt recycling business. Yeah, potentially. So there could be multiple pieces of this, and I think that that's one challenge that I think many businesses have is they try to do everything at once mm -hmm. uh, instead of doing one thing really well. Yeah. Right. And so. Uh, you may find yourself at some point pivoting into the recycling. Hey, you only. just you, you send us your 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 recyclable clothes, and we'll we'll take care of that. Yeah. Right? Well, and that's what that's what we're you know right now we're I'm going to grad school next year um, in environmental science and engineering here at Clarkson to do the actual 
analysis piece of how the recycling system is going to work. And, and that's definitely something that we've looked at is, you know, that's our core identity and the making the shirts piece is just to make our job easier. And, and it's how we can share our, um, our passion with others is through, Hey, you know, here's this awesome product, but the reason it's awesome is because we get to recycle it at the end. Right. And it's easier to way easier to recycle this product and way more economically viable to recycle this product than it is any other, uh, brand out there that you see. Uh, the, and the biggest part with, uh, outerwear and activewear is that the brand names out there are so huge and especially in the outdoor um, industry, people are very dedicated. Like that's where the real brand loyalty uh, space still is, is in those outer outerwear markets. Um, and so that's our biggest challenge that we're facing right now is, you know, there are many people that will buy only one or two brands of clothing. And those are the people that we're looking to be our early adopters because mm -hmm. those are the people that look at, okay, I like this brand because I know it keeps me safe when I'm in harsh environments and I know it's going to do the job. And so that's trying to overcome that, that brand loyalty has definitely been the, the biggest issue for us so yeah. far. And what's, what's super interesting, right, is, is that, uh, you know, when you think about like recycling, like a running shirt, right? Running shirts, if you're a runner and, I, and I'm a runner, you, you put your bib on, put a bunch of holes in my shirt, right? Mm -hmm. So my favorite shirt over time has a bunch of holes in it. Uh, but New Balance or uh, Adidas or Nike, they don't want to they don't want to advertise the fact that their shirts get a bunch of holes in them yeah. and, and recycle them, right? So you're kind of in this interesting spot where you know they want to promote durability, but we all know that their products over time are going to break down. Yeah. Uh, so you know how can you play the middleman? Yeah. You know and uh, and and take all those in in, in, in some uh, interesting way. I mean I think of electronics in the same way. If you walk into a Best Buy. On the right-hand side, when you walk in, there's all this uh, old electronics recycling. Mm -hmm. So if you have old batteries, like nickel metal hydride batteries or something like that, you do not want to just throw those into a landfill. But nobody wants to throw their old phone in there because they go, oh, that was a $1,000 phone. Now, yeah. now it's a piece of garbage. Yeah. You know, But uh, they take that in, they recycle it, they do something with it. Mm -hmm. Somebody's obviously getting the metals out of it or something like that. It would be cool that uh, you know potentially when you walk into a, uh, you know, a Nike store that they have a bin for... Yeah clothing that can't be worn anymore yeah but it should be recycled yeah and it's really tricky because everybody is in that world of oh look at me i'm environmentally conscious mm -hmm. but the product that i provide you actually can't be recycled yeah but we never think of clothing as a recyclable exactly right so, so and the thing is like oh and the companies are starting to be like oh we'll recycle it levi's has a pretty good one with uh their denim jeans they have a recycling program with it patagonia does have a refurbishment program and they do have asterisks on there that say we will recycle your product but the problem is when it's not designed for recyclability the most you're going to get out of those products is maybe 50 60 percent of the original material yeah. and that's not what you're looking for because that's still the equivalent of if it's a if it's a you know regular let's say a, a water jacket or a rain jacket um you know the amount of plastic that went into that is the equivalent of 30 water bottles so if you can only get 50 percent out of that that's the equivalent of throwing you know 15 water bottles right in the trash um and so that's what we need we need to start transitioning the dialogue to yes these things are you know polyester nylon all that it's a it's a plastic and so a lot of our challenges is education 
And education isn't flashy. It's not something that you can easily sell. And so transitioning more towards the face-to-face selling, um, working within the community, we're trying to establish ourselves as the outdoor company of the Adirondacks because for as large of an outdoor market as it is, no outdoor company really exists in the Adirondacks as its home base. Right? L.O. Bean has Maine. There's a million in Colorado. Patagonia is in California. Um, but the Adirondacks is kind of an untapped space for that. And we being born just outside of the Adirondacks as a company, um, we want to build our identity in the Adirondacks and work with the community. So that's that's where we're hoping that we can kind of flip the script on ourselves uh, moving forward. So so it's funny you mentioned uh, like Levi. So as a product manager, uh, you know one of the greatest tricks that we can do as product managers is uh, take a bug and turn it into a feature, right? So when Levi says, we'll recycle our, our pants. What they really mean is they're just going to put it back on the rack with holes in it and charge you $20 more, <laughs> right? So, you know, that's a, that's another thing too, is that as you think about your products, whether they're physical or they are, uh, you know, software or something along those lines, you know, can your bug really be a feature? Can you take something that, you know, was, you know, it seems off, but actually turn it into something that's, that's good. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, it's just another thing to kind of think about in the back of your head as mm. you're running your business or is, you know, I mean, Levi's literally does. Like, they put holes in their own jeans. Yeah. Right? That is the style. So mm-hmm. whenever my wife picks up a new pair of jeans and I see holes in it, I like that they charge you extra for the holes. <laughs> Probably. So. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. You know, you're probably the first one I've talked to in a while that has, you know, regards that traditional face-to-face selling as something that's key to success for a lot of people. And I, I think that's really cool. It's also something that we don't really teach very much anymore. No, we don't at, so at we all. Don't, we don't have really. sales courses here anymore. And actually, you know, when I run into a lot of successful Clarkson engineers, a lot of them are sales engineers. Mm-hmm. They're the people that can go to a customer, understand what their requirements are, and then be able to come up with a technical solution for them. But you have to have that ability to sell or be part of that process. And it just doesn't happen very much anymore. Um, I was kind of thrown into it. I wasn't expecting to be a salesperson. But I was selling for a product that I had a lot of passion for, which made it a lot easier, right? So, you know, I spent three years here at Clarkson running the Daily Jolt. You know, it's on its last legs. So I'm coming in and being the sales guy. So I I had a lot of motivation for doing that. Uh, But people really forget about about that process. And it isn't just about like, oh, let's make some money. Mm. It's about relationships. It's about, you know, uh, account management. Okay, great. I've made the sale. Yeah. How do I make sure they stay my customer? Uh, those sorts of things. So I think that that's a, it's a valuable attribute. I think that, uh, people kind of frown upon sales. They kind of think it is, is a, uh, as a, as a lower role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, salespeople get to learn a lot. Yeah. And then you take that and, and you go everywhere else. Um, you know, a colleague of mine used to say, well, you know who the most, you know, the, the most well-compensated employees are, right? It's the salespeople. Yeah. It's not, it's not the, you know, the manager or the engineer. Uh, there are people that insist on staying in sales because it is just, you know, they make a ton of commission. They love it. They travel. They do all those different things. So um, it's interesting, right, as we look at our curriculums and we look at marketing and sales and, and how we handle that. It's something that you kind of have to do on your own. Yeah. You kind of have to explore that. So if you are, you know, graduating from Clarkson and you were offered a job as a sales engineer or uh, or a marketing manager or something like that, like those are great, great ways to learn holistically about a business. Uh, anybody who's running their own startup, who claims to be a CEO, is inevitably 
going to have to be the salesperson, oh, the marketer, yeah. the engineer, and everything else. Yeah. You don't get to just do one do of these one things. Thing you have all. to do it all. Yeah. So. Um, so what's next for you? Is it is this the product management kind of what is it your passion? Is it what you're going to do for a while now, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so for me, uh, you know, I'm fortunate. I work in a small consulting company. Uh, you know, we've got about, you know, 20, 30 employees. Uh, and I get to touch, you know, on any given week, you know, 10 different projects, mm-hmm. which is cool. Like, I, variety is a spice of life. One one day I could be working on, you know, pacemakers uh, or, uh, you know, DNA reports. And then the next moment, you know, I'm working on, like, a social media website for, you know, volunteering. Uh, so I get to learn more about so many different businesses than I probably even should be thinking about. Like, um, you know, I have the, the fortune of being able to, like, travel overseas to represent, uh, represent a, a client uh, in, uh, in, uh, in an industry that, you know, I never went to Clarkson for that, mm-hmm. you know. But I had more than enough information. That the client said, you should go on our behalf. And you can represent us. And we're totally fine with it. And that's uh, that's cool. Yeah. Like it's it's nice to be able to speak. Uh, it's it's almost like the uh, you know you can learn ninety percent, you know in in you know a year. But if you want to become an expert, it's gonna take your entire life. Mm-hmm. Sort of mentality. Uh, I get to be the ninety percent person in a ton of different industries, which is exciting. It means every day is a little bit different. Uh, and I've got a really good group of people that I work with. Another uh, one of my colleagues uh, is also a Clarkson. Uh, graduate. Uh, he actually lived next to me uh, my freshman year and my senior year. That's pretty cool. Uh, and somehow we ended up in the same spot, actually in the same city, uh, which is not like a, it's a suburb, yeah. um, which is great. Uh, but I enjoy it. And uh, when I'm not doing that, you know, the other thing I encourage people to do is, you know, become involved in their local communities. Uh, you know, I stay very involved with Clarkson. Uh, I'm very involved with my uh, with my city. Uh, you know, I help out with things like youth sports. Uh, and, uh, so I build a real connection with the people around me, not just industry. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I find context switching, whether it's in business or in life is helpful and keeps you refreshed and makes you want to do more and more different things. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you, Ron. Excellent. Thank you. All right. All right, everyone. That's all we have for this week's episode. Oh, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Nick. And I'm Matt. Have a great week. We'll hear you next week. Yeah. Bye.